All right, so just a second ago, I uh, wished you a happy new year, but I want to back up a second and say Merry Christmas. You guys are burned out on Christmas, huh? I can still say Merry Christmas because we are still firmly within the liturgical 12 days of Christmas. That's why we've got the Christmas decorations up. And don't worry, if you're burned out on Christmas stuff, that's okay. All of this will be taken down by next week. But for now, I want us to still bask in the glow of Christmas. I want to keep looking for that star shining in the east. And if you'll indulge me for just a little bit, I want to talk to you about shepherds not just any shepherds. I want to talk to you about the shepherds who were greeted by the heavenly host, who descended to Bethlehem that first Christmas night, the very same ones who met the baby Jesus in the manger behind the inn. We don't know much about these shepherds other than these few details. We don't know their names. We don't know if they had families. We don't know how old they were, and let's keep in mind that we don't know how old they were because that's going to become an important thing to wonder about just a little later. You know, it's a strange thing that out of all of the characters in the Bible, you probably have in your home figurines depicting these anonymous shepherds, and you probably don't have figurines depicting the more famous heroes of the Bible like Abraham, Moses, Peter, or the Apostle Paul, I am fascinated by these shepherds. I am fascinated by their life in the days and weeks and months after that first Christmas. Although it's, it's fair to say that the shepherds themselves wouldn't have been fascinated by their own lives because it's against the nature of a shepherd's life for it to be fascinating. They did the things you would have expected them to do. They watched over their flocks. Maybe, maybe they weren't even their own flocks. It's entirely possible they were not the owners of the sheep. They might have been something even more lonely than a sheep owner. They were possibly just hired, rented help, paid meager wages to watch someone else's sheep for them, and their job was generally unexcited. They'd watch the sheep, round up the wayward ones, occasionally frighten away a predator with loud noises and a hooked stick. Some of those moments might have been frightening and harrowing, but that wasn't the hardest part of the life of a shepherd in the fields outside of Bethlehem. No, the hardest part wasn't their job at all. The hardest part was simply living under Roman occupation, subject to Roman rule. The hardest part was putting food on the table while oppressive taxes threatened what little money they brought home in the first place. See, all their lives, they'd heard the stories of the life their people used to have under the good King David. Their people had known peace and prosperity once upon a time. All their lives, they'd heard the prophecies and trusted in the promise of a Messiah who would come to deliver them from their bondage. The prophecy had even said, that this coming king would carry the government on his shoulders. And so when the angel came to them to share the good news of the birth of Jesus, and a few moments later when a whole multitude of angels arrived alongside to sing the praises of Jesus, the shepherds experienced every emotion, fear, shock, surprise, disbelief, exuberance, belief, excitement, hope, relief, 
They went to Bethlehem to see the child, and we read these verses on Christmas Eve. We read them every Christmas Eve. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After they had seen the child, they spread the message they had received about him, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. But what happened next? And since I am strangely obsessed with these shepherds today, let's wonder about them just a little longer. What happened next for the shepherds? Well, we get exactly one more verse in their story. It's the very next verse, the one that trails behind Mary's ponderings. One more verse And then their recorded story ends, and we get to use our imagination for the rest of it. It says this, The shepherds returned to their fields, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, which was just as the angel had told them. And that's it. They returned to their fields, returned to the sheep, presumably got back to work, Their hearts were still filled with hope and peace and joy and Jesus. The adrenaline generated from that surprise angelic visit still coursed through their veins. Like a child in the hours and days after Christmas morning, this was an excitement that probably lingered. But I have to wonder, how long did that feeling last? I wonder how long it took How many weeks passed by before one shepherd looked at another, thought about everything that had transpired, and whispered the thought that they all had to be thinking, what's next? Right? Because for for all the change that had been wrought in their hearts, for the way their perceptions of the heavens and the earth had changed, for all of the ways that their worldview had been rocked and shaken, their circumstances were still the same. They were still sheep herders. They were still lowly. They were still living beneath the boot of the Roman power brokers. Life was still oppressively hard. Luke's gospel tells us what happened next with Jesus. He would go on to be presented at the temple. Simeon and Anna would prophesy over him. Mary and Joseph would return to Nazareth, but the shepherds would not have known about these things. According to Matthew's gospel, King Herod was threatened by the whispers he'd heard of the birth of the Messiah. He sent the Magi to find the baby and later ordered the killing of every boy under the age of two, an attempt to be sure that Jesus was wiped out before he could become a threat. And you'd better believe the shepherds would have heard about this. A new story like this one would have traveled fast, even in a world that wasn't as connected as ours is. They would have known what Herod was doing, and they would have known exactly why he was doing it. Of course, they would have had no way of knowing that Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt with Jesus. They had no way of knowing that Herod's mission had been unsuccessful And I have to wonder at the doubt and the dread the shepherds must have felt during these terribly dark days, wondering what had happened to the baby they'd seen in the manger. 
I have to wonder how many of those difficult, scary days they endured before one of the shepherds reflected on the night they'd spent in the stable, knelt before the presence of the divine, and then looked at the others and wondered, what's next? Because, see, Jesus wasn't going to make headlines for the next 30 years. Three decades are going to pass before the tales of Jesus' renown would make their way back to the shepherd's ears. Remember that forgotten detail I mentioned earlier? The one about how we don't know how old the shepherds were? Here's why that's important. Because it's possible, and maybe even likely, that the shepherds who visited Jesus in the manger were long dead before Jesus healed the sick, fed the 5,000, was crucified, died, buried, and risen again. The shepherds would have known what they'd seen. They would never forget that night, never forget that baby, never forget those angels. They would always know what had happened that night. They'd been filled with a kind of faith that's impossible to imagine. But it's also possible they never figured out what happened next. So what's next? It's a question you've asked yourself before. It's a question you ask at the end of one year, the beginning of another. It's a question you ask after a graduation, after a retirement, after the doctor tells you the cancer is gone, and after she tells you again that it came back. It's a question we ask after the most awful events in our lives and after the most incredible events in our lives. It's a difficult question to wrestle with, especially when we struggle to find an answer for it. I read an interview once where an athlete described the deep depression he fell into immediately after winning his first Olympic gold medal. For a decade, he had trained and eaten and worked and scheduled every day and every hour and every minute of his life toward the realization of this one goal. And once he got there, his moment of elation was brief. All of a sudden, he wondered who he was. For 10 years, he had one goal, one objective, and one purpose. And now, what was he now? What's next? It's a question you've asked yourself when you lost your job and when you got a promotion, when the person you voted for won and when the person you voted for lost. It's a question you asked when you brought your first child home from the hospital, when your last child moved out of the house, leaving everything a little too quiet and a little too still. It's a question I asked myself over and over again as I sat alone in an empty apartment wrestling with my divorce. Some of you know this pain and most of you know someone who does. And even if you don't, you know what it's like to ask yourself that question. What's next? See, a professional athlete does not struggle to answer this question after week six of the season in the NFL. It's an easy question after week six. You get ready for the next game. You get ready for another win. But after a career-ending injury, retiring, even if you go out on top as a Super Bowl champion... Then it becomes a much harder question. It's the same question the shepherds wrestled with, the same questions I wrestled with when I slept on a yoga mat and waited for my bed to arrive. What's next? And I'll tell you how I answered that question for the better part of a year and a half. I didn't. 
For a long time, I thought there wasn't an answer, that there was nothing left for me, that my usefulness had ended and that I was just sucking up oxygen and processing food until it came time for God to call me home. I was too hurt, too wounded, too damaged, too broken, and too lonely to do anything else. I believed a lie, a lie sent straight up from the pit of hell. And I don't mean to bum you out on this first day of the new year. I know we've already talked about depression and divorce, and now I'm going to tell you about the devil, and I promise it's going to get more hopeful in just a minute, but first I've got to tell you this. The forces of evil in this world don't often try to persuade you to join them in their pursuit. The forces of evil in this world don't often try to persuade you to join them in their pursuits. That's because they've discovered that it's far more effective to just convince you to do nothing. Satan discovered a long time ago that it's easier to persuade people toward complacency than it is to persuade them to evil, but that it's just as effective There was a lie that was whispered into my ear, and for a while I even believed it. That lie became the answer to the question, what's next? And that answer was nothing. Now, that's the end of the sad part of this message. Now it's time for the good news. See, the good news is that I believe in a God who has laid plans before each of us who has known us since he personally knitted us together in the womb. I believe in a God who promises us a hope and a future, who proudly stands over each of us and declares, Behold, I am doing a new thing. I believe in a God of recreation, a God who turns our mourning into dancing, who sent a rainbow after the flood, who birthed light and life into a dark world, who conquered the grave and death, even death on a cross. See, I believe with every God-given fiber of my being that this is the work that God desires to do in your heart. He did it in my heart. You are good and valuable and needed. God has work that only you can do, relationships that only you can build, love that only you can share. He has that for me too. I am not useless. I'm going to share with you this week's Faith Fit Challenge, and if you've tracked the usual pattern of this message, you know the Faith Fit Challenge usually comes at the end of the message, but don't get all antsy on me and don't start reaching for your coat just yet. Um, Brian's gone, and I can do whatever I want. Yeah, so what I did was I stuck the Faith Fit Challenge in the middle of the message like a renegade psychopath. Ha ha. Here's this week's Faith Fit Challenge. This week, commit to spending five minutes each day in silent prayer. Five minutes each day in silent prayer. And I'm even going to tell you what to pray. Here's your prayer. It goes like this. Ask God what's next. Now, that's not going to take you five minutes. So you're going to spend the next five minutes listening for the nudges of the Spirit and noticing the whisperings of your heart. I want you to be prepared to act on whatever God leads you toward. As we enter today into a season of sabbatical, we're invited to rest, renewal, reflection. I am convinced that God has some recreation for each of us. 
This week, you're encouraged to ask God what that's all about. And now, just when it feels like I should wrap this message up, I'm going to keep going. Is there something else important that I need to share with you? Discovering God's will for your life is a process. It takes time. It demands faithfulness. I just ask you to pray uh, every day for a week for five minutes. Sometimes it takes a lot longer. It took me at least a year. So the last thing I want to talk to you about today is how you fill the waiting. How do you decide what to do when you aren't sure what you're supposed to do? I've got an answer for you in the book of Galatians. It's a great answer for the times when you aren't sure what to do. It was a great answer for me. It would have been a great answer for the shepherds too, except, of course, the book of Galatians didn't exist for them. It says this, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. That's Galatians 6, 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. John Wesley said something a little simmer, similar and a little different. He said it this way, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. A long time ago, I visited an older woman at the hospital. She was actively dying. They said days, maybe a week, hospice had been called. She was asleep a lot, but during the moments when she was awake, she was surprisingly lucid. She spoke clearly and with what little dexterity, and there wasn't much of it, but with what little dexterity she had remaining, she was laboring intensively at some very slow-going knitting. She was getting frustrated and angry because her mind was still good, but her hands and fingers couldn't work the needles the way she knew they used to. Progress on her baby blanket was slow and stilted. The woman was becoming visibly upset, very agitated. That woman had knitted a baby blanket for every newborn in her congregation. She'd done it for years. I would learn later that there was a closet full of them, gifts to new parents that would last for years beyond her death. For all I know, they're still passing them around. It seemed like they probably didn't need one more, especially at the cost of all of this frustration during her final days. And that is what her very well-meaning son tried to tell her. It didn't go well. He told her she didn't need to do this, that she could just rest now. She told him that she knitted the blankets for people who needed the blankets, that each stitch was a tiny prayer. He told her again it was okay, she could just rest, she didn't need to finish this blanket, and she shushed him. She wasn't dead yet, after all, those are her words, not mine. I'm still here, aren't I, she asked. The good Lord's not done with me yet. And the son looked at me to back him up, and I wanted none of this, because she was right. She was right. Listen, I don't know where you are or what you're going through. I don't know if you're currently in the middle of a rich spiritual harvest or a drought that feels like it's never going to end. But I know this. 
you're still here. We all are. None of us knows for how long. But as long as we're here, drawing breath, held together by the life-giving and life-sustaining presence of God, there is good for us to do wherever we are, with whoever we're with, whenever we're there, however we can. I don't know what's next, but I do know God, and I can promise you it's something amazing. I want to invite you to stand up wherever you are, I want to invite you to join me in our Clay Church Covenant, the promise that we make to one another to live the best life that we can. You'll see the words on the screen. Say it with me. I will pursue the faithful life, reaching up to God each day, reaching out to serve someone this week, and reaching one more person with the love of God. Amen. You may be seated.